Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. Now I want to invite J.J. Kaczynski to come up. J.J. is also a volunteer within the student ministry. He teaches our high schoolers, and he's going to read uh, the scripture for this morning. Take it away, J.J. Good morning, everyone. Today's reading comes from John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born again when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, But to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But people loved darkness instead of light. Because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light. And will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, JJ. Good morning. So what you just heard JJ JJ read includes the most quoted verse in all the Bible. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. Billy Graham, every single crusade he did, to the millions of people he spoke to, quoted that verse. And we see it. uh, It's hard not to watch a a serious sporting event without seeing that banner in in the stands, right? And yet a study a few years ago said that 75% of Americans don't have any idea what John 3.16 means, stands for, what it says, don't understand it. In this series called The Jesus Life, we're going to look at a number of the seminal moments in Jesus' life and what they show us about how we can learn to live that 
Jesus' life. While church is not always a compelling idea to our culture, the idea of who Jesus is is actually rather attractive to most people in our culture. I mean, they look at Jesus and they see a guy who was kind, who was winsome in his communication, who uh, reached across boundaries with acts of compassion and care, and everybody says we want to be like that. And while yet the research says that a lot of people don't really even know who Jesus is. They don't understand his life. They just have a few good, feel-good stories that attract us to him. In fact, even, even the studies of the church say a lot of us have a feel, few feel-good stories about how Jesus is, and we have some impersonal encounters that make us feel positive about Jesus, and yet we have a hard time answering the question when our friends ask us this question, and they ask us, how do you know your faith is not just wishful thinking? A feeling that comes because it's what you want in life, to be forgiven, to be loved, to be empowered, to be accepted. And that questioning objection of our skeptic friends is actually a really valid question, isn't it? Because the reality is that wishful thinking plays a big part in all of our lives. I mean, how many times have you wished for something or wished something were true and it made you feel good, but it wasn't and it dissipated? I mean, for some of us, we just have to go back to maybe adolescence and remember the first crushes we had and how those uh, beautiful feelings dissipated pretty fast when they walked away and it didn't pan out, right? But other times we think we get caught in these times where we think we're going to have this great big uh, opportunity at work. We think we're going to have this big financial gain and then it's just wishful thinking. It doesn't pan out, right? So... What we want as followers of Jesus is we want to not only have the good experiences of God. We do want those. We don't want to just have a few of the stories down. We really want to understand this Jesus life. And so that we can live it and we can experience actually living it out in all areas of our life so that we can one day answer our friends saying, I've walked it out in my marriage. I've walked it out in my job. I've walked it out in my finances. I have not just wishful thinking, but I have walked the way Jesus has asked me to walk even when I wasn't sure about it. And it's proven to be true. Knowledge continually reinforced by enduring experience. Now, I remember talking a while back to a really successful businessman. It was a really fun, interesting conversation. And we were talking about how he defines their customer. And he talked about how they did so much research. They did research on the music that their customer likes so that their ads and their uh, their stores could have that music playing when they walked in. They did research on the colors they like and the colors that they don't like, the words that drive them and make them make a decision and are attractive to them and the words that repel them. And they did all that research. They had a really clear idea of who their customer was. In today's passage that J.J. read just a moment ago, we get to actually see who I think could easily be described as Joe New Albany or Joe Westerville, just representative of our culture, who our culture is. Highly successful, wealthy, influential. In Nicodemus's case, he was part of the ruling council of the Jews, and it, uh, which basically in his world meant that he also operated as kind of a combination senator and judge in their culture. And uh, because the indigenous Jewish government that operated with the blessing of Rome during that day was a theocracy, Nicodemus was also a theologian and one of the best theologians of his day, a religious leader, a leader uh, who was wealthy, a leader of business, who uh, would be the equivalent of Harvard and Stanford educated with multiple PhDs. He's just like us. Now, I know some of you are saying, I don't have multiple Harvard and Stanford PhDs, and maybe I don't have that. But the reality is we are all wealthy. 
If you look at the global rich list, if, if, if you make 80,000 or more as a family, you are in the top 15% of Americans and the top 10th of 1% of everyone in the world. Even if you're a family of four making $50,000, you are in the 90th percentile of wealth in the world. Everyone in this room is wealthy by the world's standards. And Nicodemus is much like us, much like our culture. He's, most of the adults I meet in our community are very well educated, very well spoken, very well controlled. They have a high level of ex- expectation for morality and their pursuit of morality. And most people in our culture have an exposure to faith, whether it's, uh, whether they were raised in the church as a Christian or a Jew in our community, they have, even if they're not attending anymore, they still have a sense of religion and they have a high level of ability to succeed and a, and a huge confidence that we have the ability to take charge and make our way in the world. That is the culture we live in and we are so similar to Nicodemus. So in walks Nicodemus, Joe Westerville, Joe New Albany. It's a successful, wise, respectable person to Jesus under the cover of darkness comes to Jesus under the cover of darkness. And what, what wasn't read in our passage was immediately right before our passage, we see Jesus walking earlier in the day into the temple in Jerusalem. And if he walked into the court, when he walked into the courtroom, he saw a whole bunch of people trying to extort would-be worshipers by selling things in, in extortionist ways to them. And he sees that and he takes out this makeshift whip of cords and overturns tables and drives everybody out of the temple and And then Nicodemus, the ruler, one of the rulers at the temple, comes to him that evening under the cover of darkness. He said, Jesus, I see what you're doing, the miracles you do, and I recognize that they must be of God because no one could do them if they weren't. And Jesus cuts him off right there. He doesn't let him get any further in what he's saying and, uh, and, and, and confronts him with this kind of enigmatic saying. It's no one, he says, can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Nicodemus comes to Jesus that night, and I'm sure Nicodemus had an agenda. They didn't like, they didn't get to get to have out. He starts off by saying, Jesus, my agenda is I'm not like others. I, I believe you are who you say you are. And then we don't know what he was going to say next, but I think we could probably guess and be in the ballpark. I think he probably, one of the things he might have been about to say was to, to come to Jesus and say, could you just work with the leaders a little better? They're all really good people. They're trying to do good stuff. And could you, if, if you just, if you'll just work with us a little bit, you can have even greater influence and maybe like, you know, not overturning tables and, and, and shouting at people in the temple would be a good place to start by not doing that, you know. Uh, he probably came with the idea that I'm going to be a mentor to this guy because this guy was a mentor to everybody. He was in a position of influence. Everybody who wanted to be somebody wanted this guy to mentor him. And he probably came to Jesus with the idea of, you know, Jesus, you are so talented. You are so amazing. You are so godly. If you'll just let me guide you a little bit, I can help your influence really be great and really be powerful and affect even more people. So he wanted to come alongside of him as a mentor. And, or maybe possibly he just wanted to come to test to see if Jesus was the Messiah. Because if he was the Messiah, I mean, Nicodemus is one of the wealthiest people in, in Israel. He's going to throw his wealth and his influence behind him to free the Jews from the Romans, and he's going to be all over that. It's, it's possible he may have just come to him with some questions as well, and that may have been his agenda. But whatever it was that he came to Jesus with, Jesus confronts him. This man used to being in control of the conversation, and he takes away all control from him. And Nicodemus responds with, 
just being incredulous. He, he, he thinks, how can a man enter back into his mother's womb and be reborn? Obviously, that's, that's ridiculous. What is he saying? And Jesus answers him, and I think in his answers reveals the crux, the crux of what he's getting at by pressing the issue further. He says this, he says, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And don't you love how he just makes this confusing, mixing all sorts of metaphors in there? It's just really an interesting confrontation. And it leaves Nicodemus reeling, still wondering, how can this be? And then, and then Jesus does something that makes us even more uncomfortable. In the next five verses, he pins this guy to the wall. Theologically, ideologically, philosophically, he just pins him to the wall. This man with multiple PhDs, he basically says to him, you know so little, you, you think you're so smart, but you know so little and you're in need of so much. I mean, he says to him things like, you are Israel's teacher and you don't understand these things. I'm telling you the simple earthly things. What if I told you something difficult? What about that? He says to him. Now, that's not the, that's not the picture of the patient, friendly, kind Jesus that we like, gentle Jesus we normally like to look at. So what's the deal here? Is Jesus just, did he just catch Jesus on an evening after all the adrenaline high of clearing the temple earlier that day has worn off and Jesus should have probably had a cup of coffee and he's too tired and he's a little grumpy? No. What Jesus is doing is he's giving us a lesson, those of us who are educated, who are largely moral, who are respectable, who are successful, and it's a really valuable lesson, albeit it's a little disconcerting as well, on how we can live in a vibrant faith and what can hinder us from realizing that vibrant faith. So let's wrestle with this passage the rest of the way by looking at two questions and using two questions to help us examine the text. What is Jesus demanding of Nicodemus and us and why? And how can we respond right now, today, or in the next six weeks to live like Jesus lived to live his life out in a powerful way. So, what is Jesus demanding of Nicodemus and us, and why? Well, Jesus is leading Nicodemus to give up all his, all his control. I mean, that's an easy thing to state, right? But what does that mean? What does it mean? I mean, we joke about control, right? We talk on a regular basis about, oh, I'm a control freak, right? And we joke about that. And, and actually, we admire people with a certain amount of control freak in them because they're, they're goal-oriented, they're result-oriented, they're well-organized, they get things done, and, they, and oftentimes control freak goes hand-in-hand hand with success. As long as the only time control freak gets bad is when they limit the involvement of other people. But if that control freak can manage other people well in a team, then it oftentimes that quality takes them to the top. So we both joke about it and we admire, about it, admire it. And Jesus is confronting control in this text exhibited in three ways. And for each one of these three ways, Jesus gives us a reorienting perspective to our lives to learn to live like he lives. The first He's confronting our intellectual control. I mean, he basically, I mean, Nick, Nick Nemus is the shrewd, intelligent, one of the most intelligent people of his day. And he says to him, you know, your, intel, your intellect is foolishness. Now, Jesus is not anti-intellectual. 
Both the Bible and Jesus spend plenty of time admiring, encouraging us to grow in knowledge and understanding and wisdom. He is very, very loving of being an intellectual person, but he's confronting a trap we easily fall into when we get caught in our intellect. We like to be in control of the answers and the outcome, right? In our faith pursuit, we often wait until we've got things understood before we, before we actually act. But Jesus says to Nicodemus, you are so focused on knowing the answers that you are foolish. Jesus actually in the text talks about this metaphor of wind, and it's actually an identical word for wind and the spirit. So he's actually using this very intentionally. He says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And Jesus is saying, in our intellect, we can get so caught up in trying to analyze, so caught up in trying to critique things and understand things that we miss the obvious. That we miss the obvious, like the wind. It wasn't understood nearly as well as it is in today's world. They didn't really understand anything about it. But Jesus says, even though you don't understand it, you experience it, right? You understand that when the wind comes in a certain way with clouds, it brings the rain, and then it also dries things up. And sometimes it brings heat, and sometimes it brings cool, and sometimes it brings destruction. You experience the wind. You know the wind, right? Even though you cannot explain it. Or like in our own life, like us going into surgery, some of us who aren't trained in that area, we may not understand the anatomy and actually all the things the doctor's going to do. And we may not be able to explain how the anesthesia is going to work, but we still go through with it because we trust that it's going to be good and it's going to work, right? Yet our approach to God is often so intellectual that we doubt the obvious and hesitate to believe or act on what is clear. It's like saying no to the surgery because we don't know how the anesthesia works. And so sometimes we say no to God because we don't know how things are going to work out as we live that out in the process. So even sometimes when we pray for one another, right, that's uncomfortable. So sometimes we stop and we don't actually pray for one another because we pray for somebody in the moment. They, They ask for us to pray for them. We say, we'll pray for you. But what we mean is we'll pray for you when we go home right now. Why? Because we don't know what will happen in that moment of praying for them. And it feels uncomfortable in that moment we pray. And yet, I remember even just a couple of years ago asking the question on a Sunday, how many of here have experienced physical healing in a way that you would describe only God could have done that? And I was actually surprised. Over 50% of our congregation stood up and said, I've experienced that. See, we don't understand it, but we know it to be true. You may see this uh, even when you're hanging around other Christians and, uh, or maybe in your small group at times, you may find it easy to discuss ideas and talk about and debate knowledge and ideas, maybe even get a little bit personal, but, but you may not fully engage creating those moments where the Spirit of God can become real in them by not making room for Him to pray and show up and speak in the moment. And Jesus is saying to to Nicodemus, this Jesus life that I want you to be a part of is more than flesh and blood. He's not diminishing that intellect side. He's not diminishing those things. He's saying it's more than just flesh and blood. It's more than knowledge. It's more than just inspiring ideas and stories. It is life in the Spirit of God, being Spirit-led and spirit controlled, a whole new way of life, a whole new power to empower the wisdom of life. 
And he's asking us, along with Nicodemus, are, are you willing to face the unknown, the uncomfortable risk of waiting on the Spirit of God, of learning to sense how the Spirit of God is working in the moment to be something more, that to be something more important than just your ideas and your facts. You know, I can actually say a huge kudos to all of you and the small groups, especially as you've been as you've been actually making more room and practicing this and praying for one another and experiencing more of the Holy Spirit this last year. It actually shows up in one of the great things of our assessment of for our health that we're going to talk about. Uh, well, I'll talk about it now, so I may not talk about it later. Uh, the fact that uh, a large percentage of you uh, increase, there was a large percentage increase in the number of you who said you're sensing that presence of God and how he's leading you in your life. So I just want to say kudos to that. And let's, let's continue that. Let's continue doing prayer uh, experiments like we did on Ash Wednesday this last week uh, where we did the, kind of what's called the five-step prayer model where we actually ask somebody to say, what do you want prayer for? And then we wait and we invite the Holy Spirit and we wait and we listen. And, and when we pray, we pray as we're prompted. And then we ask, is anything happening? Is God showing up in this moment? We actually make room for God to show up in those moments, waiting on the Holy Spirit to show up, waiting on the wind. Some of the most meaningful moments in my own journey of faith and living and experiencing this this Jesus kind of life have been around those kinds of prayer moments. I remember a time uh, very vividly in my brother's living room. We were there praying with some people and just kind of waiting and seeing what God wanted to do. And one of the guys in the room felt like he had a sense from God that God wanted to say something to me. And he said to me, God wants to is here and he wants to deal with your anger. And I kind of went, that's weird. I'm like the most even keel person. I never get angry and everybody else sees me that way. What is that about? But I sensed God's spirit in the moment. And over the course of a number of time, even though I intellectually argued with it, I, I began to realize that, that the thing that was driving me to be good, the thing that was driving me to be kind, the thing that was driving me to want to lead and, 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 and help and influence people was driven from this place of anger in me that, that wanted to prove myself, that wanted to be better, that needed to be better than other people. And, and God began to unearth, even though it never came out in outbursts of anger, this fact that much of my heart's drive was around disappointment that I couldn't be better or we couldn't make a bigger difference. And he wanted to deal with that, to take a, that anger away and bring a freedom of accepting his grace and to be able to be motivated from a very different place. I remember walking in uh, years ago to a consulting situation I was involved with that was fraught with conflict. And when you walk into a, a place like that, especially as an outsider, it's the, the common wisdom is you go in and you listen a long time and you build consensus around what the issues are and you build an understanding and you don't come in as an outsider and, and confront it. But I walked into the situation and felt like God was saying, no, I want you to violate all your, your best leadership practices. I want you to go in and I want you for, straight up to just say, this is the problem, this needs to change. And it ended up being God. And it was a huge breakthrough for that church. It went, you know, God empowered the knowledge and wisdom beyond what any of us could have ever done. God's spirit was leading me another time to talk to a close friend and, uh, and confront him about some issues going on in his life. He was a very close friend and I didn't do it. And about three months later, he got up one time and said, you know what, God was speaking to me last night in my prayer and said, you were supposed to have confronted me three months ago and you didn't do it. You weren't a good friend. 
God wants to show up in our relationship decisions, in our business decisions, in our life, and break in and lead us by His Spirit to make those Jesus kind of moments on our wisdom go, go to an all-new level of empowerment in life. And that requires that we prioritize habits in our life, or if we don't already do this, reprioritize habits in our life where we make room for Him, where we learn to pray, where we learn to sense His Spirit, where we take risks when we think we are, but we're not quite sure. We just take a risk and see if that's really Him, where we take time to put our phones down and stop playing games and turn the music off and turn the TV off in the background and create silence where we could actually hear God and engage with God. You know, the problem with that is that facts, that intellect, that knowledge feel more controllable. They feel more predictable. And yet Jesus is saying, my spirit is clearly knowable, just like the wind. You may not understand it. You may not understand where it comes from. There's a certain amount of unpredictability to how God chooses to act in all of our lives. I mean, just read the Bible. Ask all the biblical characters if God was predictable. And there is that certain amount of unpredictability that leaves us feeling out of control, and yet we know it to be true. And Jesus is inviting us to a spirit-led control in our life as a constant reorientation of our life. But Jesus' demand of Nic Nicodemus uh, is uh, to, to change and let c control go isn't, doesn't stop there. He, he also confronts a problem most of us face in uh, even deciding to follow Jesus. And that is simply this. We don't want to give up our controlling view of how much we need to change. We don't want to give up how we define our identity. Let me say, let me say it this way. Most of, us, most of us see ourselves as largely okay, as good people. After all, most of us try to live largely moral lives, and we value and pursue high morality in our lives and high moral behavior, and we pursue being good and kind and generous, just like Nicodemus. And for many of us, we come to faith thinking we just need a tune-up. I just need a little add-on of something here because I can't quite overcome that. I just need a, a regular reminder of the ideals, and that's really all I need. And yes, we do need those reminders and those types of things, but Jesus is inviting Nicodemus and he's inviting us to something far more radical, a born-again radical type of change. He's saying you need, each one of us needs more radical change than we will ever be able to admit to. It's kind of like Ezekiel says in chapter 36. I think he says it really well. He says, I will give you a new heart, God is saying to us. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your, you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. It's, it's, it's kind of like rewiring my heart from this performance-driven anger that was fueling it to a grateful, free response, behavior becoming more peacefully driven instead of, instead of, instead of some, by something else, uh, being driven by joy instead of insecurity for our striving in life. And those specifics of rewiring of each of our hearts will be different doesn't matter who we are. If we're home, the homeless addict to the CEO to the, to the rabbi to the, to the priest at the altar, every single one of us, Jesus says, needs radical heart change. Now, frustratingly in this passage, Jesus doesn't define that radical change really, really clearly. He just says, I need you to be open to it. 
And I need you to realize that the only way you'll walk into that radical change is for you to learn the spirit-dependent life leading, being led by the Holy Spirit. I mean, sometimes that radical change takes on different forms. Sometimes it takes on the form, I think, for us where it challenges our natural heart's tendency to become complacent, settled in success. We've arrived. We're pretty good, and we can just kind of ease up, and we can kind of just coast now, right? And Sometimes I think it comes, too, from uh, the Spirit reminding us, demanding from us that, that, that things don't always have to be interesting. We don't always have to be entertained for our heart to be engaged. I was reminded that, of that this last week. A friend on Facebook shared a, a video that was taken of the underground church in China. And I was struck. I used to always be guilty when I listened to those. Now, now I don't feel guilty about them because I don't think that's the intent of them because it's a different culture. But, but looking at it, you look at how they meet. You know, 90 bodies packed into a 20 by 20 room, sweating like crazy for eight hours a day just to listen to somebody speak about the Bible, not even necessarily that interestingly. And yet... The Chinese church is the fastest growing, most life-changing, powerful part of the church on the face of the planet. And it's so easy, I think, for us when we get wealth and we get entertainment and we're used to a certain level of entertainment to expect that. And if it's not there, we allow our hearts to become sloppy and disengaged instead of learning to deal with staying engaged to God's purpose, even when things are quiet even when things aren't presented the most interesting way, expecting him to show up. I just think God would do more through us. I mean, the studies are even showing that our children are not being as creative because they're spending so much screen time that creativity and hearing the voice of God can't happen a lot of times without a little bit of boredom because their thoughts never slow down enough to hear anything. And I think we need to work on that, and I think that's the kind of control that Jesus is asking us to challenge. This prosperity in our culture can easily become a distraction to an engaged heart. Isn't it true? Isn't it true? I mean, that's one of the hardest temptations of our culture. The third aspect of control Jesus is demanding Nicodemus and us to let go is, I think, could be phrased this way, that we're not the initiators. And our life and our success is not about our ability to take charge of things. Now, that's difficult, isn't it? Especially for those of us who are leaders in business, and which is most of us, and we all take charge. We, we make our own way. We believe and have confidence that we can make our own way in life. And what does that mean? We're so used to being take-charge people. Nick, Nicodemus, if he was coming to Jesus as the mentor who is going to help Jesus figure things out, is confronted by Jesus completely flipping that agenda on its head with him. He says, I'm not the one following you. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not following you, Jesus says, but you need to follow me. He says to Nicodemus, you are Israel's teacher, and you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. And what Jesus is saying there is he's, he's saying, I'm the only one with the divine authority in this room. Through me, everything will be set right. Everything will be ordered. All hope exists. The very, your very life is through me. And then he goes on and says, for God so loved the world that he gave. God gave. This one with all the authority is the one who initiates his love toward us first. He makes the first move Always. 
And Jesus, Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, if you, if you want to enter into this new life, this new kingdom of God life, whether you, 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 you successful, influential leader, you need to relearn your instinctive response to life from taking charge to responding to and following the Spirit, from deciding and running ahead to seeking God's confirmation and then leading from there and running after him. I mean, what a radical rewiring needs to take place from initiating to responding. And that's what Jesus is inviting us to, to, res- be, to live a responsive life and an empowered life. You know, I've heard a number of strong take charge leaders say, and I felt this way myself too, that, that's really hard. It feels like losing control. Exactly. But that loss of control doesn't undermine everything you know. It just reprioritizes, it rewires you in that moment. There's this, there's this little story of King Saul before he was king in the Old Testament, found in 1 Samuel 9 and 10. And uh, the story basically goes like this. Uh, Saul's dad loses some sheep or cattle, I can't remember which one it was. And they go off to find him. And this going off to find him ends up being a couple-day trip. They can't find him. They keep walking around. They keep searching for him. They keep going to find him. And on the way, they meet the prophet uh, Samuel. And prophet Samuel pulls him to the side, and he anoints him to become king. And then he sends him away with these instructions in 1 Samuel 10, verse 6. He says, the Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you Come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, he had just told him a whole bunch of things that would be fulfilled as a way of proving to him that this kingship thing was going to be real. And he says, once these signs are fulfilled, once you sense the Holy Spirit coming upon you and speaking to you, do whatever your hands find to do, for God is with you. So what he's saying is once the Spirit of God is upon you, once the Spirit of God has directed you, then you are to respond to that. And whatever you set your hands to, whatever you decide to seize the moment in and take charge of at that time, God will be with you. It's instead of being self-initiated, it's a responsiveness to God. Instead of being a take-charge person, it's learning to allow that take-charge to follow God's leading and allowing our leadership gifts to follow God's leading. And we see the same thing in David's life. The thing I'm continually struck by him that I've mentioned before is how in his major decisions and even in a lot of his minor decisions, he just pauses and says, God, where are you in this? Holy Spirit, what do you want me to do and he pauses and he discerns the Holy Spirit's leading and then he does what? He seizes the day. He takes off as the leader he is and I've watched some of you and it's been a privilege to talk with some of you uh, as you've been learning more and more how to do this and experiencing more and more of this in your life to watch you see how Building those pauses into your life, building that sense of waiting for God to lead you has, has brought you some really wonderful, prosperous decisions. And for some of you, it's been decisions where you were facing what you would have normally seized as a huge, great opportunity. But God said, no, I've got something different, something better for you. And you've said no to it. You're still take charge leaders, but you're take charge after hearing from the Holy Spirit, a rewiring of your heart. So Jesus takes this Joe New Albany, Joe Westerville, 
the guy's so much like us, and he pushes him out of, out of his comfort zone, and he says, I want you to give up your intellectual control by directing him to be spirit-led, to become really good at sensing the spirit's leading. And he then goes and confronts him and says, with that reality, I also need you to understand that you need radical rewiring. You think you're really good. You think you're really successful. You think you're really competent. But you need radical rewiring. Would you just open yourself to that possibility? And allow the Spirit to come in and lead you in that. And then it says, give, I want you to give your self-initiative up and I want you to learn to live as a follower, as one responsive. And within all of that, he puts it in the context of born again. This new, brand new, beautiful, full of promise life. See, what Jesus is inviting us to in that term, born again, is such so radically disorienting, especially for those of us who are like Nicodemus the most successful and capable in the world. Like Nicodemus, he said, so it's, 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 like, it's like he's challenging us to a leap of faith, right? How many of you have ever watched, remember watching Indiana Jones' Last Crusade? The, 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 best, the best illustration in all of history, I think, of a leap of faith is, is he's about to find the Holy Grail, but he comes, you remember the picture? He comes across the chasm, and it looks like there's no way to get across, and he's going to fall to a certain death. And then you see him actually quoting uh, verses about faith, and he takes this, closes his eyes, takes this leap of faith, and discovers there's a mirage, and there's actually a way to get across, and he lands safely. And the question for us and that Jesus is proposing as those who have so much is, are we going to be willing to respond to the leadership of the Holy Spirit, to allow the great intellect, intellectual gifts that he's given all of us to become empowered and in their proper order with him, not to sacrifice them, but to let them become empowered? Are we going to face the uncertainty of being led by someone we cannot see? by the Spirit of God, by like wind. We know him to be true, even while unseeable, unexplainable, and often unpredictable. Or will we insist on being the one in charge the only, and only taking action when things are really well explained and before we take any initiative, right? During this Lenten season, we're asking everybody to do the same thing we did last year and probably going to make this a yearly tradition because I think, I think it's just really valuable. Uh, we're, uh, we, you got handouts on the way in. Uh, this one says 3-5 uh, for Ash Wednesday. Sorry, that's an edit. Last year was 3-5. Ash Wednesday, Wednesday happened last week, so don't come on 3-5 for that service. Okay, is it okay? Don't come for that. Would you take out this card, though, for a minute? And I want you to look at it. We want to take the opportunity to ask God's Spirit to break into our reality, to take a leap of faith, to begin to pray and ask God to show up in ways that he becomes known to us. And the first question we're asking you to pray about throughout this Lenten season, whether it's daily or weekly, fill this out and put it on your nightstand or, or somewhere so you see it on a regular basis or, or put it on your computer monitor at work so you see it on a regular basis and pray for it. The first question is, what do I want Jesus to do for me? Do you need him to come for some direction in your life? Do you need him to come and resolve a relational issue? Do you need him to come and, and help you figure out how you're going to get to the next step of a dream you've got that you think is from him for your life or for your work? Do you need him to come physically heal you or a, or a family member? Whatever that is, write that down there and just pray and ask God to show up and show you how he's going to act in that. The next question is, uh, what do I want God to do for my five? And we've talked about our five, and I apologize. Some of them only have four lines. Uh, because we didn't catch that printing error. 
uh, the fifth one got out on the printing margin. And uh, so you can put the fifth one down there. But the five are the people in your life who you have regular contact with. So that means more than likely they're local. Maybe not. Maybe it's somebody you talk to on the phone on a regular basis that's not local. But more than likely it's somebody local. And they are people who have either... Uh, have either never made a decision to follow Jesus or are unsure of their faith or they have disconnected from church and active involvement in pursuing their faith. And we want you to pray for those people. And not just pray, but we want you to look and expect God's Spirit to break into your reality for you to be able to pray and them to encounter God or for you to be able to care for them and encounter God's love through your care or for you to tell part of your story about how God's good to them. So look for those opportunities. The last question is, what is God prompting me to do with Quest to increase the peace and prosperity of our community? And allow that to be really personal. Last year, that prayer over that resulted in us having a a start to the 29-7 project where we're tutoring kids at risk at Hawthorne Elementary School, and that's going well. We allowed, out of that last year came the community garden. That was part of what came out last year from the prayer. How does God want to bless our community so that we can reach out to those in need more? Our increased involvement in the warm summer kids lunch clubs uh, was a part of that. Our involvement with New Albany local schools at the Christmas time to encourage them and bless them was a part of the answer to those prayers. I don't know how God's going to speak to you on that, but he's going to speak to you. And actually, we have another opportunity that I forgot to mention in the first service, this whole table down here. Uh, As part of our praying for our peace and prosperity of our community, we have identified six different leaders or leadership groups in our community that we're praying for. So I want to encourage you before or after service to come and just pray for these. And the baskets are if you feel like God gives you a picture, a word, a scripture for that person, there's cards there. You can write that on and put it on the basket, and we will send all that information along to those leaders at the end of Lent when we've been done praying for them. And let's just see what God will do in our community this year. Jesus ends or concludes what he's saying Uh, by saying this. I think this is, even though it's not the very end, I think it's kind of his conclusion of this. He says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Didn't send his Son to condemn. Most of our world feels like Jesus came to be better than them and condemn them of their sin. He says, I didn't come to condemn, but I came to save. See, Jesus has already forgiven you. He's forgiven every single one of your five no matter what their lifestyle is like. They may not have received that forgiveness. They may not have received his presence, but he has forgiven every single person. But they may be, and maybe you're you're like this too, you may be like I was, a very good person, motivated to succeed, doing a lot of good, but underneath it was this hidden anger, driving, proving yourself, trying to validate yourself. So when things go well but not great, if you're a really driven leader, you always want things to go better, right? So if things go well and you, but not great, you find yourself in this place of stressful striving to be better, driven striving to be better, instead of this place of joyful, free, pure desire just to enjoy doing things better. See the difference? And... Or when things don't go well at all, you find yourself angry with yourself, disappointed, hard on yourself. And the point of what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, to all of us, to your friends, is God wants to rewire the very core of your heart to be born again. And that is a lifelong process. 
But that process that Jesus makes very clear in this passage is also begun with a point of decision. And that point of decision is, are you going to open yourself to that kind of radical change? Are you going to choose to follow Jesus and receive that forgiveness? And you can do that today if you've never done that before. You can do it just by simply telling Jesus, I, I accept you. I'm going to ask you to change my life. And I, I'm repent of, of having my own way. And I want you to empower my intellect, empower my ideas to make a true life difference. And for all of us, let's take the leap of faith. Let's expect God, no matter what's going on in our life, to start showing up and bringing resolution and answer to these prayers for his spirit to break in to our reality and take what we don't think is possible and make it possible. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that your spirit would indeed come and that you would, um, you would break in. Lord, for the ways that we've... Um, trusted in our own intellect even when it's obvious who you are when we refuse to obey because we can't explain things even when you're like the wind and, and we know the wind we can't explain the wind but we know you and we can't explain you but we know you're real Lord I pray that you'd teach us to sense your presence to be responsive to your presence and to love following your presence Lord, thank you that with that comes the promise of newness, that you are going to rewire our hearts. The things that we don't think we can change about ourselves or about our life circumstance, the dreams that we feel like we may have had to have given up on, Lord, you still have dreams for us. You still have good for us, and you're going to walk us into that. Lord, help us to step out. And Lord, thank you that that's a confident prayer we can pray because you say you love to respond to faith. You love to come and make yourself known. So, Lord, we just worship you and we look forward to the way you show up in all of our prayers, in all of our actions. In Jesus' name, amen. Just continue to worship. And God's writing that story right now for each and every one of us. It talks about the future in that song, but that the reality is that the kingdom is breaking in now. And part of your story is God's presence breaking into your circumstances now. If you came here today and there's something you would love prayer for, please don't leave without getting prayer. Uh, there'll be several of us. You can come, come to me and I may hand you off to someone else if there's multiple people coming. We would love to pray for you if it's a healing issue. If, if you decided to say, I'm going to open myself to Jesus for the first time today, that I'm going to actually make that decision to follow him, then tell somebody about that today before you leave. But let's just go and continue to write the story of God. Uh, we're going to just break for five minutes and uh, go grab your kids, and then we'll be back in here and we'll do our annual meeting and talk about where we've been, where we're going, and celebrate some really cool stuff and pray for some things that we feel like God wants us to do. So uh, have a great week. would love to have you stay. Uh, go grab your kids. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at gotoquest.org.